So admittedly, tonight's lesson, and more particularly the title, is a little strange. At the beginning of the week, Sandy says, okay, what's your lesson title? And she puts that in there. And so I put in Sunday a.m., sick, and Sunday p.m., semicolon. And she, you know, later in the week, she came across the phone and said, hey, where's your Sunday evening title? I said, it's there. She said, semicolon? Really? Yeah, because I want you to think about it. Here's what we've got. Punctuation. There will be revival in the church over this lesson. Now, really, punctuation is probably more important than you think. If you're involved in writing of any type, you understand how important it is for an appropriate placed punctuation mark. I'm always on my significant other, who I text all the time, and uh, I tell her, honey, you used way too many exclamation points. I don't need to know. I mean, there's too much. That's, that's almost intrusive how many exclamation points there are. She will, I'm trying to convey to you excitement. If you've uh, ever misplaced a punctuation mark in a text or a letter or someplace, you know how important it is. Punctuation is way more important than you think, and in particular... This punctuation, the semicolon, what is the lesson of the semicolon? It's one of the lesser-known punctuation marks, I gather. But there is a purpose. If you're writing in anything, you use that mark for one specific purpose, and that's this. Anytime the author comes to a place where he or she could have stopped the story or the sentence, but chose instead to continue it, a punctuation mark like a semicolon is appropriate. And so the lesson of the semicolon for us is that we have a story that needs to be punctuated appropriately. As I said, punctuation is important. If you understand the, when you read this, why that is Important. I really appreciated this one. If Greg Sandlin is in the audience, he will. Your donation. Just help someone. Get a job. And of course, the ever famous, let's eat grandpa versus let's eat grandpa. Punctuation matters. What you put in what you write conveys the type of story you are giving. So, a punctuation like a semicolon indicates one thing, a pause, and not an ending. You might call it period junior. It indicates an appropriate point to stop, but not an appropriate point to end. And I think this mark adequately conveys very clearly how God writes in our stories. And how similar it must be in the way he's written, not just in our stories today, but all down the line through biblical history. Of anyone, character, man or woman, who has followed God, loved God, served God, came to a point where it almost seems like that story should stop now. But God continued writing. 
So tonight I want to share with you four characters who I think convey the idea of the semicolon. Of course, there's 400 characters in Scripture. Don't let these be the essence of this lesson. But let me draw them out specifically as we think about the Bible, the characters in the Bible, their stories, and our stories. Turn to the small little book, Jonah, is where we begin. Jonah is, of course, well known for the story of the prophet, the minor prophet, in a major form of seafood. This giant fish captures what we think of as soon as you say the name. But the point of the story is really more than the fish. The point of the story is what God continues to do in Jonah's life. It would help me greatly if you could turn those up. There we go. Wonderful. Now I can tell that's a fish and not a... They they couldn't figure out what it was. It's a man inside of a fish. As we were coming to church tonight, it was really funny because Grace had her four-year-old Bible, and she has the different... We try to read a story every night. She's got some favorites. Jonah right now is one of the favorites. And so she's reading the story, sitting in the back. And, of course, she's not going by what's off the page. She's just going by what she's heard me say and putting that in her own little version of her mind of the story. And so from the back seat of the car, she says, God told Jonah to go tell those people to stop doing bad things. And Jonah said, I don't want to. And so, Jonah tried to run from God. Now, from a four-year-old, that perspective seems very unique. Because though she's just four years old, I've seen a lot of people cause a lot of harm by essentially saying to God, I don't want to. And rebelling and trying to do what we want to do. Think of the amount of distress that was caused in Jonah's story. And certainly for himself. I mean, anytime you end up in a fish, it's not a a good way to uh, end the day or three days. He caused a lot of distress for the sailors who had this difficult decision. Certainly for the Ninevites who were not receiving the mercy of God because they didn't know about it, and not least of which for the fish. The fish had the largest case of indigestion heretofore unknown among fish. Three days of a man inside of him. So because of Jonah's disobedience, he caused an exceptional amount of distress. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. This is on the screen, so... You've probably already read it by now. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. I always thought that being in the fish was this proverbial, like you've really hit the low point in your story. 
But keep in mind here that Jonah was not at his lowest point. He certainly could have been. If God had not sent the fish, he would have been at the bottom of the sea. He had not yet drowned. He was not yet dead. He was not in a good place. But he certainly was not at rock bottom. Some people will say, oh, you got to hit rock bottom before you get, you know, some people just have to do that. But you really don't. If you'll change your thinking, if you'll change your heart soon enough, you can avoid being at the bottom. For Jonah, it took being inside of a fish, but still from inside the fish, he prayed and, and God heard him. The lesson is that hope is never absent with God. No matter where you are, no matter how bad it gets, even when the bad things that are happening are a result of your own disobedience, your refusal to submit to the Lord, and you have all of these consequences, hope is never absent. Today is the day of salvation. Story number two. Your story does not stop when you sin. And this, of course, is probably one of the better known infamous stories. You go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and it records the whole bloody mess. I mean, it was just horrific. And we kind of gloss over it because we see the end of the story. I mean, we already know how it turns out. But if you just read through that one chapter, it is, you know, it, it's lust, adultery, murder, cover-up. You know, all the sins that are sort of, as we think of them, the big ones, are in this story. And at the very end of the chapter, it says, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, God is not mentioned up to this point, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Maybe some of you have been in such a place. And it is just readily apparent that the thing which you had done displeases God immensely. I, I mean, this story has ramifications even up to today. Young ladies that are expecting children, especially if they're expecting a daughter, you say, oh, do you have any names picked out? You know, Bathsheba does not come to mind. Because it's so uh, tied in with this horrific, horrific sin. That's how we think. We think sometimes we, get, we do things that are so bad that um, it's over, it's done. God cannot use me now. Despite the well-known mistake with both David and Bathsheba, it wasn't just Bathsheba's mistake, by the way, God uses this story in the greatest story of all time. Luke chapter 2, of course, says that if you ever leave the kids leave the doors open, and, and all parents must yell this at some point, were you born in a barn? I don't know where that comes from. Probably barns. You know, Jesus was the only person who could say, yes. So he was born in a manger. And you think about what a manger is. It's in a barn. It's for animals. It's full of disgusting filth and horrible smells. Jesus came into the world in a disgusting, messy, stinky environment where no one wanted to be. 
except that they had to be. And that's a perfect analogy to his purpose. But the, the smelliest part of Jesus' incarnation was not the manger or the barn. The worst of it was in Matthew chapter 1. It's on your slide there. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I mean, that gives you an idea of how bad the genealogy was. Anytime you've got a family history that has a few redactions in it, you know, it's bad. Not a lot of people talking about it. And yet Matthew includes it here as a reminder to us that when David repented, and there were still consequences. You read all through 2 Samuel, there's a whole lot of fallout from that sin. When he repented in Psalm 51 and he says, against you and you only have I sinned, what does he do? God uses the worst part of the story and he draws it as a thread in a beautiful tapestry that is the story. If you're in a bad spot because of your sin, don't think that God cannot turn it around. In fact, his very name says it. God is with us. Emmanuel. God is with us and he's for us. And he wants to see our story end well. Of course, the oft misquoted verse in in this part of the sermon is, well, God's going to work it all out. God's going to make everything work for good. That's not what this verse says. God does not say everything's going to be good. God does not say he's going to work out good for everyone. No, he says all things work together for two purposes, for two things. For good to those who love God and who have been called according to his purpose. If you love God and you're called according to his purpose, yes, God is going to work every single thing for good. The distress, the sin, whatever it is, God is going to work it out. But if you're living in rebellion to God, don't expect God to work it out for good. If you're doing things that God clearly has commanded not to do, would you expect that God's still going to make it all okay? There's no indication in Scripture that God is going to make everything in the world that he's going to sort of magically undo all the evil that's been committed. He is going to get the victory, but he is, you know, every bad evil thing that's that's ever been done is not necessarily going to be uh, made into good. That's not what the verse says. Story number three is a story of a man whose name we don't even know. Scripture simply calls him a thief. The thief on the cross. Now, in churches of Christ, we sort of shy away from the thief on the cross story because, you know, that's the verse that, that's the example, the ad nauseum example that, of course, baptism is not necessary. But that's the, that's missing the whole point of the story. And we do ourselves a disservice by not paying attention to the story of the thief on the cross. It's told uh, in a couple of places, but I'm going to go to the one in Luke. So turn to chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, long at about verses 32 to 43, there's this interesting uh, interaction with Jesus. And, of course, he's up on the cross being crucified, but he is being mocked and ridiculed by everyone, by the crowds, 
by the soldiers, even by one of the criminals next to him, relentlessly. Now, even if you've done some of the worst stuff, most people still have the decorum when that person is at their death moment to show some respect. Jesus wasn't even afforded that. He was mocked at every level. Luke 23 says the thief is the only one in that, in that sequence of events that showed Jesus mercy. He said, this man has done nothing wrong. We're being punished justly. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What did Jesus do? Jesus did exactly for the thief what the thief had just done for him. He showed him immense mercy. Just uh, because, regardless of where you've been, regardless of uh, what particular uh, wrongdoings you've committed, your, your story is never, ever beyond God's mercy. A thief on the cross was an example, of a very unique example, by the way, of God showing clemency. And clemency is, is you know, you come into a courtroom or, or where the judge has power to rule, and, and a person is, is convicted under the law, rightly so, justly. And uh, the punishment comes to the judge, and the judge says, I'm going to give this guy or lady a pass. I'm going to give them clemency. Now, that's not the norm. That's not the expectation. I mean, every so often, presidents pardon people. Probably shouldn't be pardoned. And, and everybody gets riled up. But that's the whole point of a pardon. It's the person who has the power saying, I'm not going to execute on the punishment. So, you usually think on the cross for an example of how to be saved. Ah, that's uh, not going to work. Not going to work at all. Needless to say, he was, of course, under the Old Testament law. But his story reminds us that in our story, there's nothing so bad you have done that if you repent and ask for mercy, God will not show it. You never get to that point. And the thief is that example. And the last story is Saul, who we call Paul. But part of the story that I want to focus on is before he changed. And I just want to use his own autobiography, okay? right from 1 Timothy. If you're following along, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15 here. This is something you need to pay attention to. And it won't be on your slide, so... This is a verse you want to hold on to. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
of whom I am the worst. Now, my version has a period there, but this would be a great spot for a semicolon. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of, for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See the difference? When you stop at chief of sinners of whom I am the worst, you sort of stop. Saul never becomes Paul. Saul continues doing his thing. The point in the story of Jonah and David Meshi, the thief on the cross, and Saul is this. There are no perfect characters in this story we call the Bible. And the Bible is a, is a completely um, honest book. Some people sometimes ask on Know Your Bible about different things that are in there. And, and I, I've even told the teenagers, I said, if you want to see an X-rated story, read the Bible. Because it is absolutely honest about the sins of human beings and how far they drift away from God. The Bible never apologizes for that. It never backs off. It shows us the depth and depravity of sin and how bad it can get. And so there you are thinking, oh, man, you don't know my story. And You may be right. I may not know your specific story. But I guarantee you, you can't come up with a character in the Bible who didn't have a story. But, but God didn't end that story with a period. He put a semicolon, and he kept writing. He didn't stop where it looked like the story should have stopped. So who's to say that God can't use you? Now, I realize there's a different crowd on Sunday night than Sunday morning, but I am still convicted that the majority of people, whether they attend on Sunday, night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, or both, Many, many people feel like that their story is so unique and that some of the things that they've done, they, uh, they fear, they tremble greatly at the thought of Judgment Day and having all of their sins opened up. But there's no one in that book that had that story that's, that's much different from you. All of them needed the mercy and the grace of God and all of them are depending on him to continue to rewrite when things get messy. So that's the lesson for tonight. God uses imperfect people. I had Tyler read from Hebrews chapter 11. And we read the beginning. All the heroes of faith. And I had him read at the end. To remind us that there's not a person in that chapter and any of the people we covered tonight or for that matter anyone here in these pews that has a story that hasn't had a semicolon in it at some point where God could have stopped but he kept writing. The story of mercy and grace and love and redemption found in Christ. You think you can't be used? Who else is God going to use? There are people in your world that I will never meet personally or know their names or even see their faces. They're only in your world. 
I love the song. I think it's a Matt Redmond, but I can't remember. Um, where he says, I looked around and saw all this evil in the world. And I said, God, you should do something. And he says, I did. I, I made you. You think about that. It's the whole lesson for such a time as this. I know the world's bad out there. I know it's getting worse. It scares me to think about the world my children will grow up in. But I can curse the darkness. Or I can remember that I'm surrounded by lights. And that God raised you up for a specific purpose and in a specific story. Tonight, if you are ready to put on Christ, or if you need the help of the body, we want to help you. God can work good in your story, no matter what's happened, if you love him, and if you're called according to his purpose. Don't put a period where God can put a semicolon and continue writing. If you have a need, please come as we stand and sing.